0: Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. Welcome to the Blog by Design Podcast, where we explore the power and process behind Design for Web3
1: will guide you through the immense challenges faced in Web3, and how embracing the right design methodologies helped overcome these blockers. I'm Reem. And I'm Akhil, and we are your co-hosts. Hi, my name is Reem. I'll be your host for today's episode. Today, we have the pleasure of kicking off the podcast series with Beth McCarthy at Fullnode in Berlin, a co-working space for the blockchain community. Beth McCarthy, she is the co-founder of Dao Incubator and Starfish Network. We have the pleasure, absolute pleasure, of interviewing her today. So thank you so much for you know stopping by and chatting with us. Beth, tell us a little bit about yourself.
0: Hi, excited to be here and chatting about Blocked by Design. So I'm a platform designer in the DAO space working on these different ecosystem and kind of research and design lab projects. So really excited about DAO Incubator, which is uh, kind of a research and design fab lab and digital and physical space that's also part of the Starfish ecosystem, which is a network of spaces in New York, San Francisco, and Berlin for blockchain collaboration and kind of decentralized web projects. So i um, super excited to talk about that and some of the design work that we're doing.
1: <laughs> so the first time actually you and I met was back in May. It was the blockchain for social good meetup. I think it was called the Blockchain Assisted Democracy event, where you and a bunch of people presented about how to basically create incentive models for social good. But you specifically touched on mechanism design. Can you tell me a little bit or share with everyone like a little bit about what mechanism design is and what you were talking about at that event?
0: Yeah, so that was a super cool event, because, you know, I was speaking about the possibility of kind of designing these mechanisms and incentive structures for positive behavior and collaboration. And and cooperation among forces to do some of the objectives that I think bring a lot of us to the Dallas space, such as creating new financial structures that are able to help artists. And like one of the main kind of focuses in the space that a lot of people are really excited about, but then also these other possibilities for social good projects that are being tackled by DAO service provider platforms such as DAO Stack, Aragon. Um, You know, we heard from a lot of those. And so I think the thing that's really exciting right now um, that that event was leading toward is the fact of a lot of people are thinking about, you know, what are the strengths and weaknesses of democratic structures? How can we replicate those in these systems that are kind of Adjacent to, but outside of legacy systems that we have the opportunity to actually do right in terms of having there be weighted priority toward particular opinions, such as, you know, if you want to have diverse perspectives in your organization, you can actually build that into the actual structure of your DAO, for example. And uh, so there's a lot of really cool mechanisms that Vitalik set out there as a challenge for people in the DAO space. Like, how can we actually incorporate those into the structure? Of DAOs on both this on-chain computational level, but then also the off-chain social level, in this unprecedented way.
1: Okay. So you talked a little bit about designing the mechanisms, but how does that particular framework or that process? How does that help design the appropriate incentive models?
0: Yeah. So you know, mechanism design as a construct originally comes from game theory. So this idea of system of rational actors who will be behaving in a particular way to do something like decide what item will go to what actor in an auction, how does voting work in a particular way that can optimize for matching of an actor with an outcome or whatever. And, you know, on a similar level, like people are familiar with the prisoner's dilemma. So it's like, you know, how do you design a system in which two individuals are both incentivized to engage with each other in a particular way, such as, you know, in the Prisoner's Dilemma, you could design a scenario based on this construct where you want to be divisive and get these two people who are in prison to rat one another out. Like, you know, designing a system that encourages that would be a negative example of mechanism design, but in that same system, you could engineer this scenario so that the two people were incentivized to collaborate with one another against the system. And so this idea of engineering behavior to a specific end, you know, whether that is an expression of values through behavior, or whether that's like, you know, the incremental steps toward making a goal happen that each requires the behavior of the individual humans to make it happen. All of those things are mechanism design. And the thing that I'm really interested in is taking what are kind of these cold, supposedly objective, even though, you know, Everyone is an irrational actor, but, you know, these very like mathematical formulations of like, these are the optimal behavior patterns in the system. This is what we can kind of examine and distill. This is what we can extract and apply to different systems. This idea of like modular components of behavior, I find very useful and powerful combined with understanding the actual motivations and desires and needs of users and, you know, it's this this idea of, like, behavioral modeling and agent-based incentive structures, like, is, you know, very powerful. It's something that can be used for nefarious purposes, but it can also be used for modeling behavior in a system to understand possible negative outcomes and stop them. But, you know, most importantly, that we can also design new systems Using these methods in such a way that is specifically calibrated to the specific needs of users. And in particular, the needs of the users that you really want the system to work for, such as if you are trying to bring on onto a DAO platform, more women users, for example, not to go in a rabbit hole of that, but you know, there's all of these efforts and what I would call like legacy tech, having diversity committees, having, you know, AI ethics committees and you know, with a deep understanding of incentive design and kind of these underlying mechanisms and how to leverage them to achieve top-down goals, while also having a deep understanding of the like emergent bottom-up ways of implementing um systems for particular users, then with those combined, then we're able to kind of have not a like reaction, but move methodically and intentionally and construct things, Yeah. <laughs>
1: So So. let's unpack that a little bit because I think you hit on a lot of cool notes over there. So you mentioned a couple of times users and you even brought up, you know, example like women in the ecosystem or people with diverse backgrounds, LGBT groups. So why is that important to you? Like, where does that fit into this complex ecosystem that you're basically designing for?
0: Yeah, well, I think, you know, it's as a woman, like a a non-binary person, or depending on, I don't know how specific you want to get, but also, you know, as um, a queer person, like, and just, you know, a person who's been a femme in tech for uh, like 10 years in different ways, then seeing design of systems such as the sharing economy, such as like the rise of AI, like these different things that I was very excited about, and continue to be excited about, you know, certain elements of it, you know, arise as this thing that was going to change the world, like change the way that humans relate with each other, change economic systems, bring more freedom, like bring more equality in different ways. And (laughs) all of those things, surprisingly ended up being not only empty promises in terms of access to capital for more different types of people, which is, you know, obviously was the promise of the sharing economy, but then now it has had negative impacts on many people's livelihood and going to the really severe impacts of designing AI systems in a way that's not accounting for diverse perspectives. These concepts of platform design that impact all of us as users, but don't take these diverse perspectives into account from the ideation and design level, literally through actually building the code and designing a system that if it's recognizing particular markers in sentiment analysis, like everything starts as a human in the loop system. And I think that by having this intentional approach with designing new platforms and new ways of organizing together, but also, you know, the new financial structures that come along with that, we have the opportunity to actually redesign these systems from the inside. So it's exciting.
1: (laughs) No, that's really cool. I mean, so I'm a designer myself. And a lot of the times we go back to the users and understand that we're not creating this system for us or these products, minimal viable products for us, we are creating it for the users at the end of the day, who are going to be adopting or leveraging this prototype or whatever we're creating. But Something that you mentioned earlier when we were offline was that you did a lot of work with the MIT Media Lab. Maybe something that you want to share with us?
0: Oh, yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, I was very lucky to meet Daza Greenwood um, this past fall, who's been an incredible mentor to me, like, about legal ontologies and a lot of things that I like to nerd out about with that. But then also with helping me mature my design practice and think through this methodology I've been working on that's called dynamics design, which is this approach I've been mentioning of uh, user-centered mechanism design. A rabbit hole that often gets into about mechanism design is this idea of like, oh, it's you know just mathematical thought experiment, et cetera. And so obviously I'm very aware of that and think that it's possible to create methodologies and frameworks that apply to the human dynamics. So because of that, Human Dynamics Lab had um become kind of talk about this methodology in a specific context, which is abstracting the frameworks that are kind of at play in bankruptcy and insolvency as a way of thinking about designing equity structures for blockchain. And so since then, um, we've kind of extended that work in a series of webinars that we've been doing for the uh, Automated Autonomous Legal Entities Challenge. And so that has been really exciting because going on the same idea of kind of abstracting frameworks from legacy legal systems, less of an analysis that's like, in this jurisdiction, this happens, in this jurisdiction, this happens. And instead, kind of what are, you know, what is the, uh, essence at the core of way of thinking. Um, so the thing that we have found very useful is like intersecting with contract law, with torts law, with these different ways of conceptualizing like power differentials, flow of li- liability, how, you know, the scope of authorization and like validation ends up impacting rights and privileges and the Responsibility that like different entities have to one another. You know, we were realizing that in a lot of these discussions with like awesome organizations like Koala that, you know, I've been lucky to be a part of kind of in this DAO legal space, then a lot of the conversations distilled down to these kind of first principles or like primitives. And so Daza had, and also Brendan Maher had like the excellent idea of applying agent principle law as, you know, like a meta framework. And so what we've been doing there is, distilling into these concepts from agent principle law, such as, you know, as I mentioned, scope of authorization and looking at those as vectors for saying, like, how does, you know, how does a situation arise differently when um, the configuration of agent principle and third party is applied to different situations, you know, in the physical world with this example we've been looking at with acquiring this physical object of a book. Um, (laughs) And then going through that and saying, like, okay, we were able to establish, you know, this uh, abstracted understanding of the configuration of agent principal, and third party for individual entities and firms, you know, as they're in the legacy system. How does that then apply to DAOs and a lot of these kind of crucial sticking points that are like create so much friction with designing DAO systems? For example, At what point does a Dao act as an entity that is liable to all of its individual constituents? And also does liability always, like, is there always a symmetrical liability between like the Dao and the individuals in the Dao? And so this framework that we've been developing, I think will hopefully continue to be very useful for that because as there is emerging like different Dao archetypes such as a Diorg type DAO. So, you know, shout out to the cool people of (laughs) Diorg who have uh, registered like the first BB LLC. And by doing that, created this particular DAO archetype that we've been able to refer to with this analysis, which is like be classified as a firm, probably normally, you know, it's acting as a group of consultants that are all united for a similar purpose, performing like certain functions that would be contracted with clients, you know, but even then, you know, a cl- thing starts to arise. Is someone a client or are they a customer? You know, these kind of questions. Yeah.
1: I mean, historically, before dynamic design was the framework that you adopted to create incentive models, what was the issue? I mean, why did you use dynamic design in the first place?
0: So when I had this communication and uh, strategy consulting firm, uh, Pure Not for a while before we kind of pivoted into the blockchain space, and I started doing what I'm doing now, then there was this overarching theme that only became more resonant as we got further into blockchain, which was during the heady days of 2017, um, <laughs> and uh, noticing that when there were you know situations where it was like a breakdown in communication or you know a difficulty in constructing a public facing brand in terms of content development, content marketing, but also, you know, just having like aligned messaging, a lot of times that came down to a lack of design first principles throughout the company. And that only became more pronounced with being in the blockchain space and being like these teams are constructed, solidity developer, front end developer, sometimes a separate Visual designer who's maybe designing a UI interface, but then also community or marketing role, depending on how successful the ICO was, since we're talking about 2017, early 2018, you know, this ICO model. And in the middle of those was like this huge void of design, like uh, linking the teams who are actually creating this product, but in most importantly, linking the vision of the company actually being manifested in like how the product was like built, designed, tested, like they're was a very clear lack of user testing that like had impact for product market fit and started to be really apparent as, you know, ICOs started failing. The etiology of the failure was often based on this lack of design principles. So, you know, not understanding the user base of who was actually going to use this and yet designing incentive systems for an imaginary user base and optimizing for incentive compatibility is only a thought experiment if there's not an understanding of who these users actually are so you know for a lot of systems there was something like a panel of judges that would be voting on whether or not somebody's reputation within the system was you know going to be damaged so for example uh, when I was working at Btoken you know this idea where it's like how do you have recourse to people messing up you know, as a specific example of something where it's like, that makes sense, but who are actually going to be the users of, you know, who cares about being on this panel?
1: So you said two things that I kind of want to go back on. So you talked about not adopting design principles versus designing incentive structures.
0: Yeah.
1: How do those two differ?
0: Um, Well, I think it's, well, are you asking about the like relationship between design-first principles and an incentive structure like created based on them?
1: So a lot of people use the term design a little loosely, and I my understanding is that when you say ad- design principles, it means one thing as opposed to just designing incentives without really putting doing any back-end research. Or I, I guess I want to distinguish between you know how do you adopt the design principles and create incentive models versus just designing one. Oh yeah.
0: Definitely awesome question. Um, so I would, I would consider like design principles to be like approaching from the idea of an iterative process of learning from users and making decisions based on testable research that you have made a hypothesis about like this thing is true. So, you know, in the example that I said of a panel of people deciding whether somebody's rep would be damaged because they were a bad actor in a system, like, there's kind of two ways to approach that. You know, a good example is when a lot of companies were reading about, you know, the liberal radicalism paper, and they're like, wow, this is an incredible idea. Now we have a type of weighted voting that causes the values of a system to be expressed. That makes a lot of sense. But then, you know, when it comes to actually implementing how that works in the design of a system, it's very different to say, okay, we want to implement this methodology. And so let's just design our software architecture that way. Let's design, you know, our product vision that way. And then we'll get some users and figure it out versus saying, we think that this is the right methodology to use because we have identified a friction point that it solves because there is a symmetry of need and solution that is reached from it. And Then, you know, a second level of operating on design principles then would be like, okay, we think this is true. Let's do some research, use user research methodologies. You know, even if we don't have any users yet that we will do, you know, kind of investigative, like exploratory research to test these hypotheses and make sure that this is something people actually want. This is something that makes sense for the market. This is something that people will use in a first iteration. And that then we have testable questions to say, like, you know, people are actually motivated by these incentives. People actually want to join the system. And in particular, pinpointing when they are incentivized by the incentive, this is why and this is how that's replicable for us.
1: When you're going through this process, like when in the DAO creation timeline does this happen?
0: In a perfect world, it would happen always. It would be part of the off-chain conceptualization of starting a DAO in the first place. For example, one really cool DAO use case that we've talked to uh, with DAO Incubator is um, a group of firefighters who are really interested in DAOifying their firefighter union. And so in that analysis, the process of going from understanding the union structure to actually creating a DAO on a DAO platform to actually having a functional on-chain and off-chain way of operating, like it's so much harder to reach this kind of completion of phase one, which I would consider to be, you know, the organization actually using both on-chain and off-chain functionalities for making decisions, for fundraising, for all the different things you're able to do on DAO platforms. That will work so much better and there will be so much less user attrition, etc. If from the very beginning you're like, okay, what are the attributes of this organization that make it fit into a DAO framework. Like, why do you want it to be a DAO? Is it because you want to be able to have access to the token fundraising? Is it because you want there to be, quote, immutable ledger of, you know, voting decisions? Is it because you want to incorporate rep in the platform? Like, a deep intentionality that is framed as a testable hypothesis for every step.
1: So it's basically doing your research, doing your homework before you (laughs) even write a line of code. Definitely. And I would consider all of
0: those things to be design. Yeah. You know, like... The visual component of that, yes, but also the primitives of this kind of question asking and like interrogation as part of the iteration process.
1: So you said the visual component. And a lot of times here in like the blockchain space, they automatically associate design with just visual, just UI, (laughs) you know, design components, which I mean, to your point, is part of design, so to speak. But what we're talking about right now is not after. The structure has already been developed. The product has already been conceptualized. We're talking about design before we even get to the drawing board. Totally. When would you use this mechanism design or dynamics design before you actually create a DAO? At what point, what trigger words do you need to look for or what do you need to hear? When do you need to adopt dynamics design?
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I would say the moment of having the thought of we should start a DAO or even earlier, the thought of an organization... That may already exist saying, I wish that we had a additional type of fundraising mechanism that we can use or like say that there's an organization of like cooperative houses or like cooperative grocery stores. And they're like, you know, we have these protocols that I mean, obviously, they would not probably phrase it like this. But you know, we have these protocols that exist off chain, they work very well. But what if instead of having a huge amount of labor involved and making sure everyone knows them and like printing them and distributing them as we like continue growing? growing, than to be able to say like, all right, we need to have this off-chain component, I mean, on-chain component. And so I think that would be one point. I think as early as possible in the process of thinking about stuff, then (laughs) it's like a good time.
1: Okay. And so like you're going through the process and what kind of red flags or issues do you run into?
0: So one really interesting thing that we found, so there was a series of open DAO workshops that we did as part of the computational law and blockchain Fest thing that MIT puts on during the spring. And so we were working with some super cool DAOs like CuraDAO and kind of worked through this with Diorg. So like, as I mentioned, these several different DAO archetypes uh, and also the Starfish ecosystem DAO, we ran into different problems with each of these, which is often there's a certain way that people are thinking about how decision making would happen or how they have a more sophisticated understanding how fundraising would happen. And or they have a slight awareness of, you know, these complex things like bonding curves. And they're like, how could that help us? And for each of those, then there ends up being a friction point that arises from how the architects of the DAO want to have it happen and the capabilities of the DAO platforms or DAO service providers. So it's A major challenge in the space that everyone is very aware of and working to solve as fast as we can. But, you know, it is a problem where people have this idea of an elegant system, or often they don't know what is the possibility space. And so then, regardless, the experience of Talking through a lot of these things and then actually registering it or you know creating it on the DAO platforms ends up being different. So you know the way that we're solving that right now is you know working closely with the people from you know DAO Stack and Aragon, like hopefully soon Colony, but you know on actually having part of the onboarding starting with. Saying okay, this is the capabilities right now. You know, obviously, this is where we will go, and yeah. the, our organization will be growing together. The concept, I mean, the phrase I hate of like dog fooding your own stuff, but it's very true because every new use case is helping the platforms themselves learn. Yeah. So, you know, this thing with Starfish ecosystem DAO, a funny example that happened during this workshop. We were like, okay, let's have our first thing that we're going to vote on. It's going to be, you know. Where we go to lunch and you know, making this very first vote, Starts understanding all, yeah. how that happens, even understanding onboarding people onto it, and like oftentimes you're having to explain MetaMask or you're having to set up a wallet for yeah. someone for the first time. And in particular, explaining like, why does this DAO have a native token, even if you're just using that token as like a unit of behavior or a unit of rep or like a unit of existence for you know, things? Explaining all all of that stuff and like keeping the enthusiasm for a novel form of democracy or organization. And yes, we could just make a vote in telegram or we could you know really go to the effort of using this platform that we all love the idea of but yes it is clunky right now but it's not going to be less clunky until we all start using it
1: right (laughs) you know you hit on a really strong point so i mean if we were basically creating a DAO and a voting system for the people here at full node yes people would you know be patient enough to go through the process but let's say for example the DAO for the firefighters are they actually going to go through that entire process to vote and or they're just going to toss decided to say let's do it the traditional way put your hand up i think that you touched on a lot of points as far as where that dynamics design piece fits into this ecosystem when you're creating this complicated mathematical (laughs) labyrinth uh, of a voting system (laughs) how to distill this into more simpler forms before you create something spend thousands of hours building a network and then basically not having any users to adopt so for the past few weeks actually I've been coming into Fullnode every once in a while (laughs) popping in. (laughs) Um, And you've been basically working on the mechanism design workshops. So can you tell us a little more about what those workshops are? Um, Yeah. So
0: it's been super cool, I guess, for the past year, we've been meeting almost every Tuesday for mechanism design working group first in San Francisco and now in Berlin, which, you know, this group started out as just me being like, I want to understand more about Mechanism design and what that means and kind of have a like co-learning, like peer-to-peer educational framework for that since that's one of our strong suits at Starfish. (laughs) Shout out. But yeah, so basically what ended up happening is a lot of different people came seeking answers to the big question this time last year, which was like, you know, does this need a token? And I think the big question now is, you know, does this need a DAO? So, you know, we ended up working through, you know, series of different use cases and learning together about, you know, how to answer this question, then also, you know, working together on understanding different mechanisms like liberal radicalism when, you know, that paper came out and the possibilities that created. And since I moved to Berlin in April, then I was really excited about kind of taking the group to the next step here, which was, you know, having some specific use cases that we drill down, you know, addressing particular challenges like the One I mentioned the automated autonomous legal entities challenge as, you know, a useful way of kind of framing specific use cases, but then also exploring together whether different frameworks or ways of thinking about stuff make sense. So the one that you went to part of the uh, legal design working group pop up (laughs) that happened for two months, where we specifically were drilling into Trojan Foundation DAO and the sub DAO of Academy DAO, with this idea of designing the like architecture and infrastructure of DAOs based on... On the needs of specific users with the users being the original people who are in the DAO. But then if the DAO, such as Trojan Foundation, which aims to provide alternative and additional funding mechanisms for artists and arts and social impacts projects, how do we make sure that from the ground up and so from the ground up, I mean, from, you know, the way that the smart contract infrastructure is like designed and understood throughout these different players, like, How do we have an analysis of the smart contracts that this DAO is based on in such a way that functional roles are very clearly identified and the smart contract is able to act as a building block for greater complexity between these different actors as DAOs fractalize, more complexity gets added. so. Now I'm rambling. I'm not sure if I answered your question, but that is what we've been up
1: to. No, no, so it has been said, super though. cool. We're just hanging out, know, just chatting. <laughs> yeah. but, um, no, I mean like a lot of things that you talk about, like over and over again, is that you know it's really important for us to do our homework before we even set up the DAO. But my final question for you is like, what's the value add that you saw by adopting this mechanism as opposed to just just setting up the DAO and see how things work out?
0: Definitely, I mean the huge value that I've seen is that it actually encourages people to actually use the DAO because in kind of legacy tech, we would have this Metric of success for like daily active users. And, you know, if you're doing something like releasing a game or something, then, you know, it's so easy to have a metric of success where you're like, okay, more people are signing up, more people are using it. There, you know, isn't a point of attrition and they become, you know, a user of your product that is able to be part of this gold metric of like a daily active user. And it's so different with DAOs because it's, there's, you know, as we've been discussing, so many different levels toward that. But I think that that by having these like explicitly user-based approaches then we can start to approach a place where there are daily active users people are truly using these products and these frameworks in their daily life like you know they're making decisions cuz you know some of the projects like Curadall like impact Potentially thousands of people, like DXL, obviously a huge example. I mean, that's a possibility for being a completely novel type of investment mechanism, or DAOs in general, not necessarily DXL. But yeah, anyway. So you know, if we want to get to a point where mass adoption actually happens, then the way, in my opinion, to do that is from doing this incremental work on the ground for thinking of, you know, if you're designing a system, a system is made up of. Every individual user, and you really want to like attract and convert and keep all of them. So, I think hopefully we can start doing that better as an ecosystem.
1: (laughs) Well, thank you very much for that. Thanks. (laughs) So, okay, uh, let's say a project team now wants to start a DAO. Where do they go to learn about dynamics design? Um, How do they find you?
0: So, yeah, people should follow me on Twitter and all the things where I'm, um, ontology machine. (laughs) And also, mechanism design working group will start again in the fall, meeting regularly on Tuesdays. So we'll share. Yes, in Berlin. Well, actually, uh, so it still also happens in San Francisco. And Rodolfo and, uh, Brandon Ramirez and Tim, my collaborators on that are doing some really cool stuff. I think they actually have Ocean Protocol coming in to talk about their, uh, mechanism design, um, next week. So, Definitely encourage people to look that up on the Starfish website. And then also, if you're interested in going through this process, uh, my kind of Chaosmos canvas design that uh, works through all the dimensions needed to make a minimum viable DAO, definitely come to... Web3 Summit, my mechanism design workshop, um, it will be in the DGOV node. And we're also having a really cool educational space for crypto economic puzzle games. And also, you know, really explaining and distilling these processes for designing your DAO for functional roles, understanding users we will have like a whole curriculum of these educational workshops during DAO Fest. So that'll be up in full node and then at ETH Berlin Crypto Economic Escape Room. If you are already an expert user of mechanisms and want to stake into some, like, super cool and challenging games that I'm designing with the colony folks, like, please come. (laughs) I'm really excited about the
1: Escape Room. That sounds really cool. Um, If you're in Berlin, you definitely have to go check it out. I've heard amazing things coming out of it. So I'm really excited.
0: Yeah, so definitely hope to see some people at uh, ETH Berlin and hit me up on Twitter. (laughs) Very cool. Mm -hmm.
1: (laughs) Thank you, Beth, so much for joining us for our very first episode. Oh, This has thanks. been really <laughs> And hopefully, everyone, please connect with Beth, Ontology Machine on Telegram and Twitter. And, and, and GitHub and everywhere. everywhere. <laughs> Ontology Machine. It's a yeah. really cool name by <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, and if you were again in Berlin for Blockchain Week, swing by there are a ton of events design centered and you don't absolutely have to be a designer everyone's welcome i mean
0: everyone is potentially a designer you just have to start asking questions
1: (laughs) yeah there you have it thank you beth yay thanks (laughs)